The question, what's next? It's what we ask so many different times in our lives. We want to know what's next this afternoon. What's next tomorrow? What's, what's next next week or next year? I just finished a football season with my oldest son yesterday. And at our last practice on Thursday night, the director of the league was answering that question of what's next for 56th graders. What happens next is that in November, he said, you get to have a practice where you'll put on shoulder pads for the first time. And all the boys were thrilled that they would get to put off their flags that they've been wearing for this season. And then he went on. What happens next is you get to play seventh grade football next season. And then eighth grade football. The eighth grade football team went undefeated. Maybe that will be you. And then think about it, guys. When you're in high school, the excitement, you get to play on that big field, and he pointed over to the stadium. You get to play in front of a packed stadium, thousands of people, possibly an undefeated season, possibly even a state championship. I believe in this for you guys. This could be what is next for you. And all the little sixth grade boys, they were just getting revved up about the possibility of what's next. It's exciting at times to think about what happens next. Every young person who graduates from high school, they're asking the question, what's next? Am I going to do college? Am I going to do trade school? And I'm go am I going to just move right into a job? Companies are growing. Technology is changing. What happens next? I mean, who would have thought back in, maybe the 1990s, that there would be a number of cars operating by batteries, lawnmowers being powered by batteries, and now engineers have designed a small passenger plane to fly on batteries. What's next? With relationships, a young man is pursuing a young lady. They start talking and forming. An attraction grows. The relationship takes place. Their commitment to one another is mutual. And the question is always in that kind of setting, what, what next? What's the next step for us? We are regularly, in one way or another, asking the questions, what happens next? And this text gives us a window into what happens after we die. What happens next? Well, Mark didn't just start his gospel with this passage. We arrived at this point in Mark's gospel. How did we get here? Especially if you're joining us for the first time. Let me give you a brief review, and then we'll move into the passage that Josh read for us earlier. The gospel of Mark starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, by giving us two titles for Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, that's one title, and then he's also the Son of God. By explaining that Jesus is the Christ, Mark is telling us that Jesus is this long-anticipated deliverer whom the Old Testament or which the Old Testament has promised for God's people. A deliverer is coming. He will rescue his people. That's who the Christ is. And then he's also the Son of God. He is divine in nature of all of the realities or truths of his divine nature, we know this, that God cannot fail. Jesus, as the Son of God, will not fail in his mission. 
It was God's will for the son to become human, to be born and to live a life like each one of us. That's what Jesus did. And he came and he lived among his fellow Jews and there were other Greeks that followed him. He went through life with a message. Mark 1.15 is that message. The message is this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is here. The kingdom is present in Jesus. So what should be the response? Jesus went about preaching repentance and belief in the gospel. So what is this gospel that we're to repent to, to believe in? It's the good news that Jesus came. This deliverer came. This son of God came. And in Mark 10, he explained to us that he came not to be served like a king would be served. He would totally flip expectations. He would not be served, but he would perform the ultimate act of service. He would give his life as a ransom for many. And three times in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is saying over and over again, I have to go to Jerusalem because there I will give my life as a ransom for many. I will take the judgment that you deserve for your sins. I will take it upon myself so that I can serve you. You can have my life of righteousness and obedience. That's the gospel, the good news, that we can have Jesus' life of righteousness as a gift to us. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. He served us. He gave his life as a ransom. He died, but death would not conquer him. Three days later, Jesus rose triumphantly from the dead and conquered death. So we sing phrases like, death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Jesus is alive this morning. And you might ask, well, what is the importance of Jesus being alive? What is the importance of his resurrection? The importance of Jesus' resurrection is that all who repent and believe in the gospel, all who believe in Christ as the deliverer, the Son of God, will share in a resurrection like his. This is what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we've been united with him by faith, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there is the resurrection of Jesus, which we have seen through scriptures. Three days later, he rose again from the grave. And what's the significance for us? The significance, Paul says, is that for all of those who follow Jesus, who believe in him as their savior, will have resurrection applied to them. We will share in a resurrection like his. We're not just animals that die and cease to exist. Jesus said in one of the gospels that all of us will be raised. We will be raised to everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Everyone actually will be raised. The question is, will you be raised to everlasting life? So the question is, what happens next? There are two answers to that question in our passage this morning. I'll give them to you as we go through. And these are the two points to the sermon. 
two answers to the question of what happens next. Answer number one is this, God will raise us. God will raise us. So we move into our passage. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's quite possibly Tuesday. He's just a couple days away from his trial and execution on the cross. As he's come into Jerusalem, he's gathered a lot of attention because he went into the temple, the center of the city there, and the temple had become corrupt in its worship, and all of the religious leaders were quite satisfied with that, but Jesus said, no, this will be a house of prayer. You instead have made it a, a, a corrupt area. It's, it's a den of thieves. The Pharisees, they couldn't stand Jesus. The Herodians, religious leaders, they couldn't stand him. So they aimed to discredit him by asking him a question. A question that was supposed to be an argument. That question was meant to trap him, to cause him to stumble, so that people would look at Jesus and say, you answered that question terribly. We're not impressed with you. They asked him a question about taxes. You can go back and listen to that sermon from last week. Jesus answered them. They all went away marveling because of his wisdom. So that attack failed. But now it's another group this week. It's the Sadducees. They step into the ring with Jesus, they put on the gloves, and they want to knock him out of public favor. Now, who are these Sadducees, just so we have a little bit of an understanding for the context? The Sadducees are another group of religious leaders. They are the highest of rank. They control the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the high priest, whom we read about, Annas and Caiaphas, we read about them in the Gospels and in Acts, they are members of the Sadducee sect. The Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of the Old Testament they disregard. They don't believe in it as the word of God. They would be the equivalent of extreme Arminians today, meaning that they believe that man determines his own future. He has a completely free nature that is not governed by depravity or sin or the sovereignty of God. They also denied the existence of angels and demons. They did not believe in that realm. And then lastly, and most notably, they denied the theology of the future resurrection. In their system of belief, they held to no life after death. You simply ceased to exist. This is who they are. So now, in your mind's eye, on Tuesday, the Pharisees and Herodians have been humbled by Jesus, humiliated by Jesus. Now the Sadducees are stepping into the ring and they have a question that they want to challenge Jesus with. They want Jesus to look stupid in the eyes of the people. So what is their challenge? Here it is. They arrive in verse 19, they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, then the man, who is the surviving brother, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay. What is Jesus going to say to this? And you're probably wondering, did Moses really say that? 
Is this really in the Old Testament scriptures? What's going on here? All right, just a brief um, kind of rabbit trail here to fill in the picture here. Under the Old Testament law, if a man died and left his wife without children, the brother of the deceased husband would be given the opportunity to marry this widow. Let me show it to you so that you know that it's scripture and nothing doesn't come of surprise to you. I could see somebody attacking you saying, look at this crazy stuff from the Old Testament. It's better to learn crazy stuff in the church and an understanding for it than outside of the church. So let's get crazy. All right, Deuteronomy 25. Verses 5 and 6, here's the text of Scripture that the Sadducees are referring to. Moses wrote, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son. Okay, so there's no child here. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife. There it is. And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Okay? Give her a child. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And you're wondering, what in the world is going on here? All right. There are two purposes to this law here. Number one is this. It encouraged the urgency of having children. God had told Adam from the very beginning, Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply, have children. All right, so think about this. Men, your wife married you, not your brother. If you go into marriage knowing that you have to have kids with your wife, or else, if you die, she might have to marry your brother and have kids, what does that do in your mind? You say, okay, let's get busy. I don't want you to have to marry him. It promoted a sense of urgency where families would multiply and God would accomplish his purpose of populating the earth. This was a good thing. And secondly, second purpose was for provision and protection. If a woman is without a husband and children, 2,000 years before Christ even arrived. Think about what's going on at this time in history. People are hunters and gatherers and dependent on the clan for survival. Worse than marrying your brother-in-law as a woman is being kicked to the curb. This provided protection for women, women who were vulnerable. And so this wasn't altogether some sort of weird thing. You can see where God was using it to encourage children to be born and encourage provision and protection. Okay, but the text doesn't stop there. Let's look at the other side of the coin. A man might look at his surviving sister-in-law and say, I can't do this. Is he forced to do it? Well, Deuteronomy 25 verses 7 through 10. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and get this, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now look, I have some nice sisters-in-law, but I don't want to be married to any of them. If need be, I'd rather have them spit in my face, pull off my sandal, and call it done. And that's an option that's there for us. That's an option under the law. Now, do you remember where this was enacted in the Old Testament? There's one story where this actually took place. Some of you are shaking your heads. It's a romance story in the Old Testament. It was Ruth. And you remember Ruth had a kinsman redeemer who was next in line. She was a widow and had no children. And this man came along and heard that he could get Ruth. And Boaz said, you not only get Ruth, but you get her mother-in-law. And he said, no thanks. And so they went to the elders of the city. His sandal was pulled off. She was released from that. And Boaz, the young, well, he was a little older, but very, very available Boaz was right there for Ruth. What I want you to see is that so many times when you hear the Old Testament and the law, you kind of hear snippets of it and you think, wow, that's weird. But you miss the big picture and you miss God's wisdom behind the law. And you can see all of that as you study scripture. And as you see God's wisdom, it just helps you appreciate the Old Testament even more and more. So here's the question. And now you've got an understanding for the backdrop of the question from the Sadducees. The question continues with a scenario that they have put together in verse 20. The Sadducees say, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. Well, the second brother took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, Jesus, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, so keep in mind what's happening here. You can see that this question by the Sadducees is insincere in nature. It's the kind of question that they love to ask in order to make people who believed in the resurrection fumble around with their answers. Yet Jesus believes in the resurrection. He needs to answer the question. So what are Jesus's options? At first glance, it seems as though Jesus might have to pick between the seven brothers. He might say, well, the first brother, because he was the first one committed to her. Maybe he would say the last brother, because he was the last one committed to her. It seems as though Jesus is confined to those options. But Jesus answers with his wisdom, which we see throughout Mark chapter 12, his wisdom is on display. And notice how he answers them in verse 24. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What a pointed statement. 
to say to a group of religious people who pride themselves on knowing God's word that they are wrong is like telling a doctor, you know nothing about medicine. So Jesus continues. And he says, for when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. Now question for us. What does Jesus mean in regards to when they rise from the dead? What happens next? Jesus says that they will rise from the dead. What does he mean by that? Jesus is speaking of a literal resurrection when our bodies, yes, our bodies which have decayed and turned to dust in the ground, will actually be resurrected to newness of life. Is this taught anywhere in the Old Testament? Yes, several passages. I think the clearest, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. There it is. There's passages from the Old Testament that speak about the resurrection. But would the Sadducees accept passages from Daniel and Isaiah? They could just say, oh, well, we don't accept that. Those aren't really the words of God. So the question is, can Jesus prove the resurrection from the first five books of the Bible? And the answer is yes, he can. He presses in with a passage from the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, that they would have known very well. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is called by God to the burning bush. And there God speaks to him and tells him who he is. So Jesus asks, have you read that passage? Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what does Jesus mean by those words? When God said to Moses, I am, not was the God, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have to keep in mind that those three patriarchs have been dead for about 400 years. And yet God is telling Moses at the burning bush, I am still their God. Not just I was their God when they were alive, I am still their God, which means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not cease to exist. They have souls that continue on. This means that we are not those animals who just die and are done. The Bible teaches us that we are eternal creatures. There is life after our earthly life. You can think of the example of the caterpillar has one phase of life, then goes into that cocoon, and then comes out as something far more beautiful and wonderful. That's us. And the Bible gives us further instruction or further information about that. So I want to take a look at that with you. 1 Corinthians 15, 
possibly the most instructive on this particular topic about resurrection, our future life. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 to 44. The Apostle Paul writes, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For the star differs from star in glory. Okay, so what is he going to say? So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, this body, is raised imperishable. There's the difference there. These bodies right here are perishable bodies, and yet we read that there is raised an imperishable body. Then later on in the passage, Paul says in verses 50 and following, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what is Paul saying there? He's saying that we will be resurrected. We will be raised up. And in our resurrected state or in our raised up state, we will have an imperishable body, an eternal body. It will be a body that is far better than we have now. I mean, most of us know that our bodies are sort of going off the cliff right now. We feel it. We see it. Um, Dave Van Ort had surgery this last week because his spine is starting to collapse. Or it was two weeks ago now. And thankfully, the surgery option has taken away the pain. But why did he have to have that surgery? Because the spine starts to deteriorate. Some of your backs ache. Some of your hearts have aches around your cavity, your heart cavity. Some of you have shoulders that are painful. Some of you have knees that are just giving you fits. Some of you are saying, my brain does not click as fast as it used to. Something is going on right now. Here's what's going on. Your body is perishing. And eventually, it will come to an end. But is that it? No, the truth is that this body is going to be raised and it will be renewed. It will be created by God to be an imperishable body without the effects of sin, without the pain and hurt anymore. Now, you might be here this morning and you might not be a Christian. And you might be asking, can I believe this? I mean, I don't know of anyone else who has ever gone to the other side, had a resurrection body, come back, and has shared it with us so that I can see and I can believe. Therefore, I don't know that it can be real. Two answers to that. Number one is this. There is someone who has died and who has been raised. That is Jesus. 
And the Bible tells us that. And you have to come to that point where you would acknowledge, I won't believe that that happened, or I will. Secondly, think about your own physical birth. Eight months into your life inside your mother's womb, you had no clue what a bite of a chocolate gooey brownie with whipped cream on top would taste like. You had no category in your mind for delicious desserts. You had no framework in your mind for a 76 degree Saturday in October in Michigan. Those things weren't there in your mind because you didn't have the capability to have those in your mind. And in the same way, folks, we have not crossed into that next phase of life where all of the realities which are true, they might not have categories in our thinking, but that does not disprove the reality or the truth that they are there. And so when we come to God's word, we come and see this is what God has promised for us. God has planned so much for us in the eternal state. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he shares that he was caught up and he heard things that are too great for words. They can't even be uttered. And then he said that what he experienced there was of surpassing greatness. The revelations, possibly things that he saw, was of surpassing greatness. It surpasses greatness. He can't even describe it for us. So folks, here's what Jesus is teaching us. There is a resurrection that will take place. There is a reality that is coming for all of us. And as Daniel 12 said, there's a reality to either everlasting life or everlasting judgment. So a question that needs to be asked is, are you going to be raised to everlasting life? Since this is true, you will experience the resurrection in one way or another. And Jesus came as a Messiah deliverer to rescue us from everlasting judgment. And the way to receive everlasting life is simply by belief in Jesus. He went to the cross and took upon himself the judgment that we deserved for our sins so that we could have his righteous, obedient life in exchange, and it's given to us as a gift. And the Bible promises us that those who believe in Jesus can now stand before the Father in heaven and be cloaked in righteousness so that he declares us as righteous, he sees us as innocent, and we're welcomed into everlasting life. The resurrection to everlasting life is given to you, received only by faith. You don't have to go out and do amazing things. You don't have to go out and be a super good person. Jesus did it for you. Just receive his gift in faith. So Jesus has just taught. He's just proven the resurrection from Exodus 3. We looked at other passages. But still, Jesus has to answer their question about marriage. And in so doing, 
Jesus gives us more on how great our eternal life in the resurrection will be. So here is the second answer to his question. The second answer is simply this. God will change us. God will change us. Now, where do we see that? We see it in verse 25 where he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So what will we be like? He says we will be like the angels. In this new resurrection state, we will be like angels. What does it mean to be like angels? He's not saying that we're going to fly around and blow trumpets and that kind of stuff. He's teaching that we will be like the angels in the sense that angels are not married. So in the resurrection, we will neither be married nor given in marriage, but instead we will be like angels. Now I have to say that over the years, this has been a little bit of a mind stretcher for me. Chris and I were out on a walk last night and we were talking about the passage this morning. And it just kind of makes you think, how will that even be possible? I mean, are we, speaking of Chris and I, going to be in this resurrection state, the new heavens and the new earth, Okay, not married, but sort of making eye contact, remembering our secrets from the past. You know, wink, wink, nobody else knows. Is there going to be something special there for us? I also have this jealousy streak that goes in me. And one outlandish thought is that there's going to be like other heavenly handsome men showing up at her mansion, just knocking on her door with some roses. Hey, you want to hang out this afternoon? Stop laughing. (laughs) I just want to go, yuck! I don't want to go there if that's the case. You know, those sorts of thoughts. But here's the truth. We don't have real categories for what our emotions and our feelings will be able to be like Because we live on this side of the resurrection. Just like the baby, alive and on this side of the womb, has no category for that delicious dessert and for that Grand Canyon and for that Saturday in October, we can't really fathom it completely. We will be completely different. We will be radically changed and we will be in a better body We will have higher loves. There won't be any jealousy because God will make us to be unmarried. And in that sense, we will be like angels and our desires will be for God. So, does this have any application for us? I think it does. If you are in a tough marriage or a marriage that has an unforgiving or harsh spouse. Let this be an encouragement to you. In the resurrection, these harsh realities will be gone. If you're in a harsh marriage, you might question your own self-worth. You might have insecurities about what your spouse is doing or how you will go on. You have pain. All of those things will be completely gone. God is going to give you a new heart and a new life where you will be satisfied completely. You will be able to love God fully and be loved by him. And your worth and your security will not be bound to a person. It will be unchallengingly linked to God. 
What about in a good marriage? Let this reality of the resurrection be an encouragement to you. Your good love for one another is merely a small picture of what heaven will be like. The resurrection body which God will give to you will have capacity for affections that go far beyond the best of what you've had in marriage because you will have a new body. You will have new emotions. You will have new capacities. In the resurrected state, you will be able to love God and appreciate him in far greater ways than even the most intimate times in marriage. God will be your greatest affection. What if you're a single or a widow? Let this reality be an encouragement to you because marriage clearly now is not ultimate. Marriage is good. God has designed it, but it is not ultimate for us. There is a true reality that God will give in the resurrection, a reality that will surpass marriage. So if you are single and God has led you to singleness, or if you are a widow and, and God has you in this state of widowhood, claim this promise that this is not the last. You will leapfrog past marriage and enjoy higher affections than what you've had in marriage or could have had in marriage and that's what God is going to do for his people. It will be far better and greater than anything that we have experienced. Now, the angels. Think about the angels for just a moment so that we can kind of see ourselves. With whom are the angels most enthralled with? They're most enthralled with God. They are focused upon God right now. You remember when the angels came to announce the birth of Jesus, they came to the shepherds in the field and they said, it's glory to God. We're here for him. Glory to God. Here's the message. A savior is going to be born, but we want all glory to be pointed to God. We sang holy, holy, holy as a reminder of the heavenly beings in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. These angelic beings are around the throne of God. They are praising him. Their attention is set on him. They are captivated with who God is. That's where they are. And that's how we will be. Someday all Christians will be like the angels. We will be changed because God will change us. And you think, does that mean I'm going to be floating on a cloud and blowing a horn and Maybe just have a loincloth covering me like some of those silly angel pictures. No. As you read the storyline of scripture, we see in the new creation that we will be stewards of what God gives to us. The Garden of Eden, but better. It will be far greater. We'll be working on behalf of God, bringing tribute to him, enjoying the new creation. But our hearts in a unique way will somehow be given over completely to God. Will we enjoy one another? Absolutely. Paul said in his letter to the Thessalonians, be encouraged because those who have died, you will see them once again. Encourage one another with these words. So we will have even greater relationships than marriage. The inhibitions that we have with one another, the way that we preserve ourselves, the the kind of awkwardness that you might experience with other people, all of that will be gone because God will give us greater bodies. We will be like the angels who are completely fixed on God. Last, let me close with this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, down through chapter 4, verse 1. 
Here is a truth for us to hold on to. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. There's the change aspect. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God is capable of doing this even if we don't have the categories in our minds. So then, how should that dictate the way that we live now? Paul says, therefore, in light of this reality, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm, Christian. We know that this eternal reality, which we cannot fully comprehend, is going to be true. And so Paul goes through Philippians and he talks to them about their joy and, and sometimes how they're losing their joy. And then in chapter 4, he says, stand firm now in this reality that God is going to transform your lowly body to be like Christ's heavenly body. What does it look like to stand firm now in anticipation of us being raised and transformed? Well, standing firm right now means that we are grasping this promise. We are believing it. And insofar as we are capable and by God's grace, we are letting the realities of that promise trickle down to us. So Paul could say, don't let the squabble, Yodia and Syntyche, between the two of you cause problems. Don't you realize that your citizenship is in heaven? So all brothers and sisters in Christ, put away the squabbles. Why? Because someday you're going to be like the angels. Start working on it now. Stand firm in the Lord, Paul says. How? Find your joy in him right now. Why? Because that's going to be the reality of the resurrected state. Stop chasing after idols right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Stand firm in the Lord now. How? He says, think on these things, those things that are truthful. Why? Because God is going to transform your body to be like his glorious body, and that will be the reality of eternity. Let it come back to you right now, insofar as God's grace will allow it to. The reality is, folks, that our lives should be different now because of what God will do then. He will raise us, and he will completely change us. Let's pray.